Sometimes life can feel like a pressure cooker. From our work life to our personal lives and relationships, there's so much to balance. It's easy to feel weighed down when you're experiencing anxiety, stress, or sadness. Guess what? You are not alone. Support is all around you. No matter where you are, all you need to do is ask. Let us help you find a community at churchescare.com. Churches are communities of care. Go to C-H-U-R-C-H-E-S-Care.com to explore the possibilities. Churchescare.com Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exzoneradiotv.com or www.xzonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Welcome everyone to Too Good to Be True. Thank you for taking the time to listen. The subject for today's show is the Black Dahlia and other unsolved murders. Before we start getting into details, let's just briefly talk about psychic insight and how we apply it. We choose a subject then research it and based on that research we determine what we think needs to be explained by creating a series of questions. Then Justina provides psychic insight to answer those questions. The psychic insight is narrated towards the end of the show. Accepting the psychic insight is a question of individual belief. Now let's go through the disclaimers. Here are the disclaimers. Neither of us claim to have any expertise in any subjects that we discuss. We relate information we find through research and the psychic insight. We are always delighted to hear from the listeners. The show only lasts an hour. We don't have the time to present exhaustive research on any topic. This means that there will be information that we miss. We want to provide a basis for the psychic insight. We don't care if a theory turns out too good to be true, as the show name suggests. We are only interested in finding out more of the truth about topics. Spirit can only relate insight that is appropriate for our time in history. Free will cannot be affected. Only comments that are appropriate for our time can be given through the psychic insight. Much of the subject matter in shows may have already been covered many times in other media. We want to look into subjects in a new, different way and be thought-provoking. We are not so good with pronouncing names, we apologize, and neither of us have any particular knowledge of history or of the criminal investigation. If we have misstated anything, we apologize. The Black Dahlia is a mystery that won't go away, even though it occurred in 1947, over 70 years ago. The name appears to be based on the popular film noir Hollywood movie The Blue Dahlia, released in 1946. The movie The Black Dahlia, based on a book authored by James Elroy, was released in 2006. Some listeners may be familiar with the story and the condition of the victim's body when it was discovered. 
Wikipedia describes the scale of interest in the murder of Elizabeth Short. Quote, Short's unsolved murder and the details surrounding it have been a lasting cultural intrigue, generating various theories and public speculation. Her life and death have been the basis of numerous books and films, and her murder is frequently cited as one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history, as well as one of the oldest unsolved cases in Los Angeles County. It has likewise been credited by historians as one of the first major crimes in post-war world war, post-World War to America to capture the national attention. Unquote. Was Elizabeth's upbringing unusual? Yes, in that her father disappeared when she was quite young. The biography website provides the details. Quote, Elizabeth Short, best known as the Black Dahlia, was born on July the 29th, 1924, in Boston, Massachusetts. The third of five daughters born to Cleo and Phoebe May Short. Cleo Short abandoned the family when Elizabeth was five years old. At a young age, Short developed a strong affinity for cinema, by her teens, she had set her sights on becoming an actress, actress, unquote. What was Elizabeth like as a person? The University of North Carolina Black Dahlia website has several accounts of how others saw her, including the following. Quote, Bet was good, sweet, funny, not stuck up, always stopped and chatted, made you feel at ease. And what a walk. The truck drivers and men would stare when she walked down the street. It was a wonder there weren't more truck accidents when she walked down Salem Street. She looked so graceful, but eye-catching, something to look at. Dorothy Hernan, Medford neighbor, unquote. Others noted her dark black hair and admired her beauty. She wore black clothes quite often. The name Black Dahlia rose from her black hair. What happened after she had set her sights on being an actress? Her father, Cleo, appeared living in California, Apparently, he had faked his own death in, in abandoning the family. The Thoughtco website takes up the story. Quote, the age of 19, Elizabeth's father sent her money to join him in Vallejo, California. The reunion was short-lived, and Cleo soon grew tired of Elizabeth's lifestyle of sleeping during the day and going out on dates until late at night. Cleo told Elizabeth to leave, and she moved out on her own to Santa Barbara, unquote. Then she got arrested. What was she arrested for? Not a serious crime. The Thoughtco article continues, quote, There is much debate about where Elizabeth spent her remaining years. It is known that in Santa Barbara she was arrested for underage drinking and was packed up and returned to Medford. According to reports up until 1946, she spent time in Boston and Miami. In 1944, she fell in love with Major Matt Gordon, a flying tiger, and the two discussed marriage, but he was killed on his way home from the war. In July 1946, she moved to Long Beach, California, to be with an old boyfriend, Gordon Fickling, who she dated in Florida before a relationship with Matt Gordon. The relationship ended shortly after her arrival, and Elizabeth floundered around for the next few months. Unquote. Medford is an area of Boston. The Flying Tigers were American military pilots who, before the United States became involved in World War II, volunteered to join a Chinese fight against the Japanese invaders. Did she ever get a chance to become an actress in Hollywood? She, get, she did get to live in Hollywood, but probably not as she had hoped. More from the ThoughtCo article, quote, there are, Those around her knew, know that it was over the next few months she moved often was well-liked but elusive and not well-known. During October and November of 1946, she lived in the home of Mark Hansen, owner of the Florentine Gardens. The Florentine Gardens had a reputation as being a rather shoddy strip joint in Hollywood. According to reports, Hansen was said to have various attractive women roaming together at his home, which was lo located behind the club. Elizabeth's last known address in holiday was Hollywood was the Chancellor Apartments at 842 North Cherokee, where she and four other girls roomed together. In December, Elizabeth boarded a bus and left Hollywood for San Diego. She met Dorothy French, who felt sorry for her and offered her a place to stay. She stayed with the French family until January, January when she was finally asked to leave, unquote. What happened after she was asked to leave? 
She was given a ride to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles by someone she knew. This occurred on January the 9th, 1947, as again described by the Thought Co. article. Quote, Robert Manley was 25, year old, 25 years old and married, working as a salesman. According to reports, Manley first met Elizabeth in San Diego and offered her a ride to the French house where she was staying. When she was asked to leave, it was Manley who came and drove her back to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, where she was supposed to be meeting her sister. According to Manley, she was planning to go live with her sister in Berkeley. Manley walked Elizabeth to the hotel lobby, where he left her at around 6.30 p.m. and drove back to his home in San Diego, where Elizabeth Short went after saying goodbye to Manley is unknown, unquote. So what happened next? Apparently, there was a sighting of her in a cocktail lounge near the hotel the same evening. Then days later, her mutilated body was discovered in plain sight by a passerby. She was only 22, year olds, 22 years old when she died. Wikipedia describes events, including no attempt to hide the body. Quote, on the morning of January the 15th, 1947, Short's naked body was found severed in two pieces on a vacant lot on the west side of South Norton Avenue, midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street in Leemert Park, Los Angeles. At the time, the neighborhood was largely underdeveloped. Local resident Betty Bersinger discovered a body at approximately 10 a.m. while she was walking with her three-year-old daughter. Bersinger initially thought she had found a discarded store mannequin. When she realized it was a corpse, she rushed to a nearby house and telephoned the police. Short's severely mutilated body was completely severed at the waist and drained entirely of blood, leaving her skin a pallid white. Medical examiners determined that she'd been dead for around 10 hours prior to the discovery, leaving her time of death either sometime during the evening of January the 14th or the early morning hours of January the 15th. The body had obviously been washed by, washed by the killer, unquote. There were other mutilations. The details are well documented. Between January the 9th and January the 15th of 1947, Elizabeth Elizabeth's movements appeared to be entirely unknown. What evidence was found at the murder scene? According to Wikipedia, there was a hill print near the body amid tire tracks. A cement sack containing watery blood was also found nearby. Who were the main suspects? There's much written about the case and its aftermath that describing all the suspects could take a very long time. However, Wikipedia describes a suspect believed to be the murderer by his own son, who first got involved by trying to clear his father's name. Quote, George Hill Holder Jr., October the 10th, 1907 to May the 16th, 1999, was an American physician. After the 1947 murder of Elizabeth Short, otherwise known as the Black Dahlia, police came to consider Hodel a suspect. He was never formally charged with a crime and came to wider attention as a suspect after his death when he was accused by his son, Los Angeles homicide detective Steve Hodel, of killing Short and committing several additional murders. Prior to the Dahlia case, he was also a suspect in the death of his own secretary, Ruth Spaulding, but was not charged and was accused of raping his own daughter, Tamar, but acquitted. He fled the country several times and spent time between 1950 and 1990 in the Philippines, unquote. Before fleeing in 1950, and I think we'll have to stop right there, Justina. Yes, we'll continue after the short break. And you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net.
It's hard to listen to the news without realizing we're living in volatile, unprecedented times. Yet never has there been such an opportunity to transform the human condition. As old structures fail, where can we find the guidance to co-create a better way? Find Your Path Home is an ever-evolving, leading-edge information, education, and healing resource center designed to support and guide you on your path to unity and enlightenment. Based on sound principles employed by shaman worldwide, we provide techniques that can support you through the current transitions, offering online shamanic classes, international long-distance shamanic healing sessions, complimentary Mission Evolution radio episodes and Stairway to Heaven TV vignettes, seminars, retreats, and much more. All of this can be found on findyourpathhome.com. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. Path Home Shamanic Art School proudly presents the Gathering of Shaman 2019 Fall Retreat, Manifestation Samhain. Join me, Certified Shamanic Instructor Gwilda Wiyaka, in the magnificent Colorado Mountains this November 2nd and 3rd for a life-changing event. Participate in unique teachings and ceremonies that will put the power and magic of shamanic manifestation into your hands. Sit in circle with like-minded individuals, sharing group energy and the power it generates. Classes will be held in a facility next to the beautiful, majestic Arkansas River, further empowering the experience. Space is limited, so reserve your spot today. For more information, visit findyourpathhome.com or email touchin at findyourpathhome.com. to Too Good to be True, and before the break, we were discussing the murder suspect in Elizabeth Short's murder, George Hill Hodel. Dad, can you please continue with what you were saying? Yes. Before fleeing in 1950, he was going to be indicted for the murder of Elizabeth Short. Witnesses claim that during 1946, there was a relationship between Elizabeth and the physician. Hodel's house was bugged by the LAPD for several weeks in 1950 with the following voice by Hodel included in a transcript. Quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her? Maybe I did kill my secretary. Unquote. Did anything positive come out of the death of this young female victim? Yes, in 1947, following the murder, California became the first state to require registration of sex offenders. Let's move on to the Tylenol poisonings that occurred in Chicago in 1982. Wikipedia explains the events from over 30 years ago. Quote, the Chicago Tylenol murders were a series of poisoning deaths resulting from drug tampering in in the Chicago metropolitan area in 1982. The victims had all taken Tylenol-branded acetaminophen capsules that had been laced with potassium cyanide. A total of seven people died in the original poisonings, with several more deaths and subsequent copycat crimes. No suspect was ever charged or convicted of the poisonings. New York City resident James William Lewis was convicted of extortion for sending a letter to, to Johnson & Johnson that took credit for the deaths and demanded $1 million to stop them, but evidence tying him to the actual poisoning never emerged. The incident led to reforms in the packaging of over-the-counter substances and to federal 
anti-tampering laws, the actions of Johnson Johnson to reduce deaths and warn a public of poisoning risk have been widely praised as an exemplary public relations response to such a crisis, unquote. How did the investigation proceed? Here's more from Wikipedia, quote, Police, knowing that various sources of Tylenol were tampered with, ruled out manufacturers as the tampered with bottles came from different pharmaceutical companies. And the seven deaths had all occurred in the Chicago area, so sabotage during production was ruled out. Instead, police concluded that they were likely looking for a culprit who was believed to have acquired bottles of Tylenol from various retail outlets. Furthermore, they concluded the source was most likely supermarkets and drugstores, over a period of several weeks, with the culprit lightly adding the cyanide to the capsules, then methodically returning the, to, to the stores to place the bottles back on the shelves. In addition to the five bottles that led to the victims' deaths, three other contaminated bottles were later discovered, unquote. Was that the end of the murders? There were many copycat murders that followed, again from Wikipedia. Quote, Hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol, other over-the-counter medications and other products also took place around the United States immediately following the Chicago deaths. Three more deaths occurred in 1986 from tampered gelatin capsules. A woman died in Yonkers, New York, after ingesting extra-strength Tylenol capsules laced with cyanide. Excetrin capsules in Washington State were tampered with, resulting in the deaths of Susan Snow and Bruce Nickel from cyanide poisoning and the eventual arrest and conviction of Nicole's wife, Stella, for her intentional actions in the crimes connected to both murders. The same year, Procter & Gamble's in Caprin was recalled after, after a spiking hopes in Chicago and Detroit that resulted in a precipitous sales drop and a withdrawal of the pain reliever from the market. In 1986, University of Texas student Kenneth Faris was found dead in his apartment after succumbing to cyanide poisoning. Tampered anison capsules were determined to be the source of the cyanide found in, on, in his body. His death was ruled as homicide on May the 30th, 1986, unquote. What ended the murders? Changes in packaging and in the law and probably increased surveillance in retail stores. Quote, more from, uh, more from Wikipedia. Quote, the 1982 incident inspired the pharmaceutical food and consumer product industries to develop tamper-resistant packaging, such as induction seals and improved quality control methods. Moreover, product, product tampering was made a federal crime. The new laws resulted in Stella Nichols' conviction in the Exceptrin tampering case for which she was sentenced to 90 years in prison. Additionally, the incident prompted the pharmaceutical industry to move away from capsules, which were easy to contaminate as a foreign substance, uh, could be placed inside without obvious signs of tampering. Within the year, the FDA produced more stringent regulations to avoid product tampering. This led to the eventual replacement of the capsule with a solid caplet, a tablet made in the shape of a capsule as a drug delivery form and with the addition of tamper evidence safety seals to to bottles of many sorts, unquote. What is the next unsolved murder? It may or may not have been a murder, but the death of writer Edgar Allan Poe is still a mystery. Poe has been described as the master of horror writing. Edgar Allan Poe may not be that familiar to many of the listeners. Why don't you explain who he was? He has his own Wikipedia page, which starts with this overview, quote, Edgar Allan Poe, born Edgar Poe, January 19, 1809 to October 7, 1849, was an American writer, editor, and literary critic. Poe is best known for his poetry and short stories, particularly his tales of mystery and the macabre. He is widely regarded as a central figure of Romanticism in the United States and of American literature as a whole. And he was one of the, early, uh, one of the country's earliest practitioners of the short story. He's generally considered the inventor of the detective fiction genre and is further credited with contributing to the emerging genre of science fiction. He was, well, he was the first well-known American writer to earn a living through writing alone, resulting in a financially difficult life and career, unquote. What was the life expense, expense, 
expectancy for males in the mid-1800s. Poe was only 40 when he died. That was about the time that doctors started washing their hands, but other significant improvements in public health were decades away. If infant mortality is excluded, male life expectancy was around the upper 50s, so Poe had died young. What were the circumstances leading up to his death? Before getting into that, we should mention Poe's lengthy non-fiction work, Eureka. It is Poe's intuitive concept of the universe. The work is described by Wikipedia. Quote, Eureka is Poe's attempt at explaining the universe using his, his general proposition, because nothing was, therefore all things are. In it, Poe discusses man's relationship to God and the universe, or as he offers at the beginning, I designed to speak of the physical, metaphysical, and mathematical of the material and spiritual universe, of its essence, its origin, its creation, its present condition, and its destiny. In keeping with this design, Poe concludes that space and duration are one, and that matter and spirit are made of the same essence. Poe suggests that people have a natural tendency to believe themselves as infinite with nothing greater than their soul. Such thoughts stem from man's residual feeling from when each shared an original identity with God. Ultimately, individual consciousness will collapse back into a, a similar single mass, a final ingathering, while the myriads of individual intelligence become blended. Likewise, Poe saw the universe itself as an infinitely expanding and collapsing, like a divine heartbeat which constantly rejuvenates itself, also implying a sort of deathlessness. In fact, because the soul is part of this constant throbbing, after dying, all people in essence become God. Unquote. Was there any science behind the work which was described as nonfiction? Apparently not. Poe was trying to convince through suggestion rather than prove his concept of the universe was true. Poe died in Baltimore, which led up to his being there in October of, 19, or of 1849. The history website provides an outline, but it's not clear uh, why he arrived in Baltimore. Quote, Despite his macabre literary genius, Edgar Allan Poe's life was short and largely unhappy. After his young wife Virginia got tuberculosis in 1842 and died five years later, the already hard-drinking Poe apparently drove deeper into the bottle. In the late summer of 1849, he was in Richmond, Virginia, where he proposed to an old sweetheart, Elmira Shelton. On September 27, 1849, Poe left Richmond, supposedly bound for Philadelphia. The details of his actions and whereabouts over the next few days remain uncertain. But on October the 3rd, and passerby noticed Poe slumped near an Irish pub in Baltimore, Maryland. When Poe's friend, Dr. Joseph Snodgrass, arrived, he found the 40-year-old writer in what he assumed was a highly drunken state, wearing cheap, ill-fitting clothes, very different from his usual mode of dress. Taken to Washington College Hospital, Poe slipped in and out of consciousness. He died early on the morning of October the 7th, reportedly uttering the last words, Lord help my poor soul, unquote. Apparently he had been on his way to Philadelphia for an editing job. Another theory was that he was on his way back to New York, but boarded the wrong train and ended up in Baltimore. That all sounds very odd. Poe not wearing his usual clothes was certainly odd. The cause of death was never officially stated, as no death certificate was filed, although a local newspaper is said to have stated that congestion of the brain was the cause, possibly as a euphemism for alcoholic poisoning. Well, I think we'll have to go into the break, Justina. Yes, we'll continue after the short break, and you're listening to Too Good to Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, 
Join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, The X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation. Keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. to Too Good to Be True, and before the break, we were discussing Edgar Allan Poe and his strange death. What are other theories besides an excess of alcohol? There are a lot of theories, including a more recent one. Author Matthew Pearl believes that the cause of death may have been a brain tumour. The following is from a 2007 London Guardian newspaper article, quote, but Pearl has now discovered evidence that Poe died of brain cancer, which may explain why he had suffered from hallucinations and delusions. Pearl's evidence came in the form of several old newspaper stories written about the exhumation of Poe's body 26 years after his death. Poe's coffin was being moved to a more prominent spot in the cemetery, and then and the onlookers were amazed to see that a drunken, sorry, shrunken brain was still visible inside his skull. It was described as being dried and hardened in the skull in an 1878 article in the St. Louis Republican newspaper, whereas a letter in the Baltimore Gazette claimed that the cerebral mass evidenced no sign of disintegration or decay, though, of course, it was somewhat diminished, unquote. Matthew Pearl checked with a forensic pathologist who thought that the so-called sunken brain could have been a calcified brain tumour. The brain would not survive to be in a skull after 26 years. What is the most common theory? One that crops up a lot is described in the same London Guardian article. Quote, Still another theory holds that Poe was a victim of a, a notorious political tactic called cooping. This was where citizens were often press-ganged off the streets by political campaigns and forced to vote several times in local elections. They were often bribed with drinks and even new clothes in order to disguise their identity. Gunners Hall was a pub which was also used as a ballot station and was, no was notorious for the practice. Unquote. Gunners Hall was a pub where, uh, where a pub was found slumped nearby on election day in Baltimore. If kidnapping led to his death, I guess it could be called a murder. Could he have died as a more direct result of violence? There is a theory that Poe could have been beaten by muggers and subsequently died of his injuries. With that, it's time for the first question. Starting with the murder of Elizabeth Short, known as the Black Dahlia, why has the murder been described as one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history? Basically, since the circumstances are so strange, so the case just draws in a lot of curiosity, and with the case being unsolved, unsolved cases become quite famous, especially when all the facts don't really line up. 
Why did the murder capture national attention? Basically because it was such a different type of murder, you could say. So that, and also the law enforcement wanted to get many different people in the public involved. So they chose to involve the public. Why did Elizabeth Short at a young age develop a strong affinity for cinema with her by with by her teens she had set her sights on becoming an actress? Basically just what she wanted to do with her life. So it was on her life path to be dedicated. So overall she just chose that path. At the age of nineteen, why did Elizabeth join her father in Vallejo, California, especially after he abandoned the family when she was only five years old? She saw opportunities, so instead of thinking more emotionally, she just saw an opportunity and took that opportunity. Why didn't Elizabeth pursue a, a career as an actress or find other work rather than going out on dates until late at night and sleeping during the day? She wanted the experience of being young and she wanted to try new experiences, which included going on dates and staying out late. Why did Elizabeth choose to live on her own in Santa Barbara after her father told her to leave? She wanted to prove she could do it, so she wanted to prove she could live alone. Why was Elizabeth returned to the Boston area after being arrested for underage drinking? That is where her permanent address was, so she brought back to where she was a permanent resident. Why did she spend time in Miami as well as Boston up until 1946? She was curious to what these other cities brought, so she was traveling around to see what the life was like in these other parts. Had she spent time in Miami as a young person because of respiratory problems? Not really, no. That was part of the draw, was the weather, but not fully. How much did the sudden death of Major Matt Gordon, uh, Gordon affect her? It was emotional for her, but she decided she wanted to keep living her life. In 1946, when Elizabeth moved to Long Beach, California to be with her old boyfriend, Gordon Fickling, why did the relationship end shortly after her arrival? Basically, they put on these fronts with each other, so they didn't really know each other very well, and this caused a lot of tension. Where did she go for the next few months before living in the home of strip joint owner Mark Hansen during October and November of 1946? She stayed with random people, so she slept wherever she really could. Why did Elizabeth move out to her last known address in Hollywood, the Chancellor Apartments at 1842 North Cherokee, where she and four other girls roomed together? She got into an argument with them, so she wanted to leave and be by herself again. In December of 1946, why did she board a bus leaving Hollywood for San Diego? She wanted a new start, so she thought if she left Hollywood, it would be a new start where she could live the life she wanted to. How did Elizabeth meet Dorothy French for her to offer her a place to stay? They just met at a cafe, so it was just a coincidental meeting. Why was her stay with the French family until January 1947 so short, with her being finally asked to leave? She was very argumentative and wanted things her way, so she didn't agree with everything that was being done in the household and spoke up about what, about this, but this was the issue since she was a guest. On January the 9th, 1947, why did Robert Manley drive Elizabeth to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles where she was supposed to be meeting her sister? She was actually meeting someone different. She was meeting someone she hardly knew. Did Elizabeth meet up with her sister at the Biltmore Hotel? Correct. Can we say anything about the person she met up with? It was someone she only knew from two other visits, so she didn't know this person well. Was Elizabeth planning to live with her sister in Berkeley? Yes, but again, this is not what the meeting was about. After saying goodbye to Robert Manley in the hotel lobby around 6.40pm, where did she go next? She went up to one of the hotel rooms. Was there a sighting of her at a cocktail lounge near the hotel the same evening of January the 9th? Yes, later that evening, correct. What happened to Elizabeth between January the 9th, where she was last sighted, when she was last sighted, until the time she encountered her murderer? It's tricky to not say too much since this is an open case. However, she encountered her murderer soon after she was last sighted. 
is someone she met and trusted right away. So it wasn't much, there wasn't much time on the timeline. It sounded like she was trusting her a whole life. Did this make her life risky? Yes, and she always saw the good in people. So she didn't see any red flags with certain individuals. On January the 15th, why was her body lying in plain sight in a vacant lot where it could be easily found? The person felt some guilt, so they wanted the body where it could be easily found. Why was the body severed in two among other mutilations? Unfortunately, the killer enjoyed the kill, so the person enjoyed messing with the body, you could say. Why had all the blood been removed and the body washed? Basically a cleansing ritual, so to cleanse the body for the eventual burial. Were medical examiners correct in determining that she had been dead for around 10 hours, leaving her time of death either sometime during the evening of January the 14th or the early morning hours of January the 15th? That is correct, yes. Was the hill print near the body amid tire tracks associated with the murderer? Yes, it was. In 1946, did a relationship exist between Elizabeth Short and physician George Hill Hodel Jr.? There is a casual relationship, yes. Was George Hodel, who in 1915 fled to invite indictment, the murderer? That is difficult again, since this is an open case. But the simple answer is there's someone else. There's another suspect. Does that mean there was more than one murderer? Yes, there is more than one person involved in the situation of the murder. What was the motive for the murder? There wasn't a direct motive for the murder, more of an angry situation that turned violent. And once the situation turned violent, the first person contacted a second person who was more skilled in killing. So that is why the body was found like it was, since the second person was more of a professional with murders. Was George Hodel, as a medical professional, the second person? He was involved. It cannot be said, so it can't be confirmed nor, de- nor denied. But his medical knowledge came into handy, yes. Did George Hodel also commit several other murders, including his secretary, Ruth Spaulding? He injured her, yes, so he was involved in multiple serious injuries to women. Is there anything else that can be said about the Black Dahlia murder? That finding the first person should also be a priority, since the first person is still walking free and was involved in the death, even though their part was more accidental. But the first person is linked to that hotel, and if records could be searched more thoroughly, their name and information could be found. Okay, we're going to change subjects after the break. Uh, Maybe you've got just a few seconds to talk about the Facebook page. Yes, you can find us on Facebook at Too Good To Be True with our first two spelled T-W-O or on Instagram at T-W-O-G-T-B-T and we'll continue after this short break. You're listening to Too Good To Be True with Justina Marsh and Pete Marsh on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar's sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, 
Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I dot net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide 15 exclusive channels like Exxon, Sci Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. Memorable dynamic presentations are a not so secret weapon in the business world. Do you have a powerful message that must be shared, but you haven't found a way to deliver that message? Do you want to be known as a top public speaker who gets amazing results? Are you ready to create and deliver your powerful message? Thomas Hydes can help you create and deliver your speech to get the results you desire. Visit IconQuality.com. Did you expect your business to flourish, but instead it plateaued or didn't get off the ground yet? Would you like to achieve massive goals and discover new sources of income within your business? When you're ready to experience that type of success with fast results, Cindy Hendricks is the business coach for you. Her work with entrepreneurs and business owners has been life-changing. To get you and your business where you want to be, go to imaginemoresuccess.com. Has the fear of public speaking stalled your business or personal life? What would you give to develop and maintain supreme confidence? Have an invaluable private program to always perform at your best. Imagine how you would feel. You can have all that and so much more today with Thomas Hyde's life-changing course called Number One Fear Unleashed. Visit NumberOneFear.com and be liberated from your fear of public speaking. Welcome back to Too Good to Be True. And before the break, we were just about to change subjects with the questions and psychic insight to the Tylenol poisonings. Dad, can you please ask the first question about this topic? Sure, Justina. Uh, why would someone want to randomly murder innocent victims with Tylenol-branded acetaminophen capsules that have been laced with potassium cyanide? It was a game to them, so they wanted to see what type of victims would take the medication. And it was kind of a game of playing God, where they controlled who died and who didn't with this chance encounter. So they wanted to feel powerful as a conclusion. What was the mental condition of the perpetrator? Was the person a psychopath or mentally ill? The person is a psychopath. So the person is still alive? Yes. Why was no suspect ever charged or convicted? Was it just because of lack of evidence? Yes, and it was hard to trace all the tainted medication, so there was too many variables involved. Did New York City resident James William Lewis take responsibility for the deaths so he could demand $1 million to stop them? Yes. 
Was there any evidence at all that James William Lewis was a poisoner? No, there is not. Why did the killer tamper with bottles from different pharmaceutical companies? Was it to increase the number of victims? Yes, and increase the game of chance. So the person thought the people who did take the tainted medication were the ones that deserved to die. Were there any reported deaths in addition to the seven deaths that occurred in the Chicago area in 1982? Yes, there is an additional five. Why were those never reported? They were said to have died of more natural causes, so their blood was never tested and an autopsy not done. So if you are not searching for some kind of tainted medication, their death may look like something else. Were there more contaminated bottles other than the five bottles that led to the victim's deaths and the three discovered later, and also the ones who killed the other five? Yes, there were others. So the authorities didn't report them or they weren't used? They weren't used. What can you say about the murderer's identity besides being a sick person? This person is a male and is actually quite involved in the public. So they interact with the public quite a bit and are involved with more social services. So they do have a greater knowledge of humans and their psychological and physical needs and symptoms. So they do have more medical knowledge than the everyday person, but are not an actual medical doctor. Would it, be ever, would it ever be possible to get the evidence to identify the murderer? Unfortunately, it would be very, very difficult since this person would not stick out and could be linked to the deaths, but would be very difficult to trace. So this person is unlikely to commit any more acts like this, so the traceability is low. Why were there hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol, other over-the-counter medications and other products after the seven reported murders? Basically, copycats are looking up to the original circumstances in a way, so they see an opportunity and they take it to where they want to prove something to either the public or themselves. So unfortunately, copycats are mentally ill for the most part, since they want to do harm and they want to get attention from this harm. How many individuals were there behind the hundreds of copycat attacks? There was quite a few, so there was more than 50 separate individuals. Can you say anything more about their mental state motives and identities? They were from a varied background and some did have some type of mental illness, but some wanted to get public attention. Their motives ranged from poisoning people they didn't know to poisoning strangers to see if their poisonings would work and harm someone. So it varied. Unfortunately, these individuals would never get caught since it's so hard to trace. An interesting note is some of the copy hats were female, so many are thought of being male, especially in the circumstances of harming someone or murders, but some of those people were female. How were further deaths avoided until 1986 when a woman died in Yonkers, New York? Chance, basically, is so many people buy medication and don't take it. They let the medication go expired, they throw it away, and the cycle continues. So it was a chance that not more people were hurt. In Washington State, why did Stella Nichol murder her husband, Bruce, and also Susan Snow? It came down to a lot of rage and jealousy. Was the idea of using contaminated Excedrin capsules to blame the deaths on some unidentified copycat murderer? Yes. In the 1986 death of University of Texas student Kenneth Faris, was this another random poisoning? Yes, it was. Can you say anything about the identity of the murderer? It was someone who wanted the public's attention. So it was someone who seeks attention in all aspects of their life. And it was a male. Have there been any confessions, confessions of guilt that are unknown to the public? Not at this time, no. Changing subject to Edgar Allan Poe, where did he get the idea for his non-fiction work, Eureka? Basically, his imagination combined with some of his own reading and research. So he combined some very different drastic ideas. Is there any truth in Poe's explanation of the universe, including that it is infinitely expanding and collapsing? That could be said, yes. Why would Poe believe that his writings could be more convincing through suggestion rather than through science? 
He believed in the power of suggestion. So basically the concept that the subconscious listens to everything. So the conscious mind might not realize it's listening, but the subconscious absorbs like a sponge where no matter what information is put out there, it pieces and tears apart the information and puts it back in a way where it understands it. So this concept that the subconscious is working under the surface. On September 27, 1849, did Poe leave Richmond, Virginia, with Philadelphia his destination? Yes. Is there any truth in the theory that he was on his way back to New York but boarded the wrong train to Baltimore? No, he knew where to go. What actually happened to Poe between leaving Richmond on September 27th and being found slumped outside an Irish pub in Baltimore on October the 3rd? Basically, he was kidnapped and someone took him. So he was kidnapped, capped, and put into a pub. Was it a coincidence that his friend Dr. Joseph Snodgrass lived nearby? No, that was not really a coincidence. It's more of a connection, you could say. Did Poe die of brain cancer suggested by the cerebral mass visible in his skull when his coffin was moved, as reported in an 1878 newspaper article? and later in a letter in the Baltimore Gazette. He had some damage to his head, yes, but it was not brain cancer. Did he die of alcoholic poisoning? That was part of it, yes, so the alcohol did have a large effect on him. Was Poe a victim of cooping, where victims were abducted and forced to vote multiple times in disguise, which might explain his cheap, ill-fitting clothes in a pub used as a ballot station? Yes, that could be said. So he was kidnapped from Philadelphia as a victim of cooping, so they brought people from out of town. Yes. So they wouldn't be recognized. Yes, that's the exact reason. They brought them from all over. Why was no death certificate filed? That was usually filed by the family, and the family didn't end up filing one. So when Poe was kidnapped and brought to the pub, was, was he made to drink or did he decide to drink? He decided to drink, so it was his choice to drink. What else could be said about the strange death of Edgar Allan Poe? Unfortunately, someone can die from their own actions, and you can see this different cases, and they don't realize what effects different substances have on their bodies. For example, alcohol. Some people do die from natural causes, but they have to make strict choices for what they put in their body. And there is this warning, so to be more careful on where you are going and make sure you tell someone where you are going at all times, since there are people who want to harm someone or force someone to do something. For the Black Dahlia and the Tylenol poisoning victims, um, what could be done to find evidence to discover the identities of the killers? Unfortunately, it's very difficult at this point with the cases being so long ago. But the one thing that is important is trying to find some type of DNA evidence. So looking through old evidence, anything collected from the scenes, and studying this for any possible DNA. Since DNA is way more likely to be matched today than any other time in history. So resurfacing surfacing the evidence and also asking for the public's help. Many cases wouldn't be solved without the public, so that is very important. That was the last answer. Would solving just one of these cases be too good to be true? That depends on what you are prepared to believe. I've never really got into the Black Dahlia uh, murder. It kind of frightened me a little bit. Uh, I, I knew about the, the condition of the body, and it was somewhere I didn't want to go. But I was really surprised that uh, one of the murderers, at least, is still alive. I think the biggest takeaway from any true crime case for me is the comment at the end that to solve different cases, you need the public's help. So I think every single person is responsible. If they see something suspicious, if they're out late at night and something just feels a little bit odd, go with your gut, call it in. You don't know if that information is actually relevant to solving a case or helping someone before something bad happens. Yeah, the Tylenol murders, uh, that was a little, I don't know, depressing is the right word, but a uh, little frustrating that uh, there's no real hope for bringing these people to justice. Well, on that note, you can contact us at our Facebook page 
at too good to be true or instagram page at 2gtbt and as always we'd love to hear from the listeners if you have any suggestions for future shows or any comments and as always thank you so much for listening and we look forward to next week's show